0: alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm very excited about bringing you A really special guest today who's inspired me and I'm sure will inspire you. Her name is Karen O'Brien. She's an internationally recognized expert on climate change and society, focusing on themes such as climate change impacts, vulnerability and adaptation, including how climate change interacts with globalization processes and the implications for human security. Karen is interested in how transdisciplinary and integral approaches to global change research can contribute to a better understanding of how societies both create and respond to change, and particularly the role of beliefs, values, and worldview in transformations to sustainability. She is passionate about what potential there is in quantum theory and the implications for climate change responses. Karen, welcome to Conversations.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk today.
0: So awesome to have you on. I'm I just discovered your work last year and I'm so excited to talk to you about Climate and Society: Transforming the Future, your new book with what's her first name? Lachenko? Um, uh, Robin Robin Lechenko. Lichenk. There we go. There's a mm-hmm. picture of it for those of you who are watching video. So let's start out just talking about what you mean by treating climate change as more than an environmental issue.
1: Well, I think that um, often, you know, we look at climate change in this as it's something that we're doing to nature, and it's something that is, um, yeah, it's, it fits in the category of an environmental problem that environmentalists are dealing with, and it's kind of like kept off in this little separate box. So environmental ministries and agencies and environmentalists deal with it, and. And the point that Robin and I really are trying to make and many people um, in the social sciences is that it's really, it's much more than that. It's, it's a social problem. It's a human problem. It's a development problem. And it's a relationship problem. And so unless you can really look at the social and human dimensions of climate change, you, you could end up really solving the wrong problem.
0: Yeah. You know, I was really struck by how that view, the, the contemporary view distances ourselves from the issue. And it doesn't allow us to feel the pain or the threat or actually physically feel what's changing in the world. It's, it's like a protection, huh?
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and I think that like it's very easy to just keep it as this cognitive abstraction, the climate, and just keep it in our heads rather than really, as you say, you know feeling it, embodying it. and I think it's changing a lot right now because people are feeling it, and there are a lot of emotions coming up, and you know the it's happening faster than many scientists maybe would have thought you know thirty, forty years ago, and I think that um you know it's just becoming clear that it's much more that we have to um, address it in a different way. We're failing to address it as an environmental problem or as a technical problem. And that means we have to really look at it as an adaptive problem and as something that's much bigger, You know, take it from a broader and deeper perspective than we have been doing.
0: Yeah, I so appreciate your bringing in that human element. Well, let's start out a little bit with, as a climate scientist, give us a picture of where we are in the science, not the complete issue, but an overview of the science, what the latest projections are. Uh, If we continue to be in a business as usual kind of uh, stature, what are the impacts that are uh, predictable? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, um, right now, all the governments are meeting in Madrid to talk about precisely this. What is the update of the, um, the, you know, where are we at? And then I think in 2019, we really realized that with even with, if we meet the Paris agreements, we will get to a world that is, you know, 3.6 3.6 to 4 degrees Celsius warmer by the end of this century. So our targets are simply not enough. And so all of the the most ambitious plans we have um, for cities, for um, sectors, for you know whatever we're looking at, they're they're really just not ambitious enough to avoid the risk of dangerous climate change. And a lot of the new science is is looking at at feedbacks that are in in the system of you know the melting of the Greenland ice and um, permafrost melting and methane and, and they're starting to see that, you know, that, that we really, you know, we can reach these, you know, so-called tipping points where small changes create irreversible changes in the climate system. So, so what we know is that you know, we we have added greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. We've reached a rate that has never been, you know, broken a new record just this, um, this past month of 407 parts per million um, in the atmosphere. And we know that even if we reduce all of our emissions today over the next decades, just because you know, what we already what we have already admitted into the atmosphere is there, but also so much heat has been absorbed by oceans, about 90 percent of the heat. So so we will have to adapt to climate change and we will have to reduce our social vulnerability to these changes. But what we do today is going to have such an important impact on the different curves that we follow over the next um, centuries. And so, so we've already, you know, we, it's, it's kind of this both and we have to adapt to some changes, but we also have to recognize that there's a huge difference between one and a half degrees Celsius global warming and two degrees or two and a half degrees or three degrees and four degrees. It's not a linear change. And that sea level rise of 50 centimeters is very different than one meter or two meters or three meters. So it really, you know, puts the, the, with the problem and solutions right here now today that this, you know, like what we do really matters.
0: Yeah. It's so overwhelming for people. I think that it's just hard to imagine I mean, looking, as you say, 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to 4 degrees Celsius, which would be projected if we don't change anything from the way we're doing by.
1: Like 10 years or so, we actually, you know, we need to bend the curves as soon as possible. Right. And, you know, we're, we're delayed on that. So, so the amount of change has to be much more rapid. And, and that means, you know, we really have to focus on nonlinear social change.
0: Yeah. Or what I call like quantum social change, really. Nonlinear social change. I love that. So nonlinear social change is you talk about transformation. It's a leap in the way we change that's not a, a linear projection of where we are, because we're dealing with exponential curves anyway when we're talking mm-hmm. about those changes. But why is it so difficult for people to grasp the immensity of the issue and to respond appropriately. I know one of them is it looks so big that what can I as an individual do, but there are many other subtle ways and messages that are happening. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, I think that, you know, like throughout history, the idea that, you know, we can transform these global systems, you know, that's quite, um, you know, it's been, um, you know, sunspots or the Milankovitch cycles of, you know, the earth's rotation around the sun or, you um, You know how do um, you know like the gods or you know that we have all sorts of different things, but suddenly it's like we collectively are changing the global climate system, and that's I think that's um, hard to grasp. And because it's not just climate is you know it's an average of weather, but it's really the whole system that we're changing. It's the ocean currents. It's it's the you know it's atmosphere. It's biosphere. It's it's the entire Earth system that is being transformed. In fact, many scientists are suggesting that we're in a new geological epoch called the anthropocene you know that where humans are are a geological force on the planet and that is you know like that's quite a a leap to go from from thinking that we actually don't make much of a difference and nature is very robust and resilient to saying like oh we actually are leaving an, an enormous um Footprint on the planet, or um, you know, mark, and that we are changing the trajectories, going into terra incognita or a non-analog world where there's we don't know from the past what the future will hold anymore. So uh, you know that it is a um, you know that the that um, you know the the scale of that can seem really overwhelming, and it can be so distant from what we're doing in our everyday lives. And our you know, and we talk about a four degree warmer world, but you know, what does that mean? It's a global average for some areas. They're already four degrees warmer. You know, if you look in the the polar regions and half a degree is dangerous climate change for some communities in coastal areas or species, or, you know, it's, it's really, um, it really is the context.
0: Talk, talk about the difference between weather and climate. I think people have those things collapsed.
1: Mm -hmm. I think um weather is you know what we experience every day it's the um it's yeah it's all the um you know what we can feel and measure and you know it's raining it's snowing what we prepare for and everything and climate is an average of weather, and often we take like a thirty year average to say this is the the normal um climate and so in some ways you know like the the climate is um is like what we we generally expect and the weather is what we experience every day and weather varies tremendously and um and so you would expect that some days you have um, you know like it 's abnormally cold some days it 's abnormally hot that 's the weather and things. but when you look at the patterns of those changes and averaging them and looking at them over time, you start to see that there's trends in them and that there 's patterns and that 's what we 're really interested in we 're not interested in you know is it you know like super warm today or super cold today, but what does that mean when you start to connect the dots and see? you know, it it really is that we're changing a system. And so that's, I think, where, you know, climate science is so important because we're really looking at this bigger picture and the longer term, and we're trying to take into account all different types of, you know, normal variability with what is that human fingerprint on the climate system. So that expresses itself through weather. And I think that's where people are really feeling it now. you know, tremendously is that, you know, you're seeing changes in the weather and that are linked to changes in the climate caused by human activities.
0: Yeah. I think it's people are starting to feel it because of the weather, but the weather is also often a place where climate deniers are able to cherry pick little things that are happening, like, oh well, it's getting colder in this area or it snowed here. So obviously climate change is a myth. So Talk about the disinformation that's happening. And it's such an issue. Uh, You know, if I turn on Fox News, I I think I'm on another planet, for instance, here in North America. Talk about climate deniers. And that's part of the four worldviews, I think, that you talk about in your book. Maybe you can Mm -hmm. add all of those in together and talk about them.
1: Yeah. Well, we talk about um, discourses or ways of talking about climate change. And, you know, like the biophysical discourse really looks at it as a, as an environmental issue, like the, um, you know, like looking at biophysical properties and it's an environmental problem. We need to address it that way. Um, And then we look at the critical social discourse that looks at how have we organized society and, you know, what are the, um, you know, like our economic systems, our political systems bringing in politics and interests and power and, you know, just the, the way we over time have have kind of come into creating um, a society that is using, you know, burning fossil fuels and changing land uses. Um, and then we talk about the dismissive discourse, which includes several types of, like, dismissive, because on the one hand, there's people who do dismiss the science of climate change. And often within the media, people talk about, do you believe in climate change or do you not believe in climate change? As if it's you know, a yes, no type of answer. And I think it's really, how do you understand the climate system and our role in the climate system? And so if you just look at climate as weather, You could be changing your mind every day, you know, like, oh, it's warm, it's hot, you know. But when you start to understand, you know, the relations between the atmosphere and, you know, the Earth's surface or the biosphere and the water or the hydrosphere and the ice sheets and things, you start to see all of these different flows and patterns. You start to see how humans, you know, how we're changing the whole energy balance of the Earth by like burning Fossil fuels are releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere because greenhouse gases, you know, they vibrate like this and they kind of create heat and they warm it. And it's, um, you know, it's it's really a, a question then of you know the yeah how how do you understand our human environment relationships and um, our role in. Um, larger earth system. And so that's one aspect that we have. But we also have, you know, other ways of of dismissing it. Because you might say, Oh yes, the climate is changing, but it's not human activities. It's just happening and we just need to adapt to it. And there are many people who just are saying, you know, yes, of course the climate is changing, but that's the way it is, without looking at the relationship again with um what what we're doing and how we are accelerating that um, that change. And then there's others who recognize it as a problem, but then don't really, um, you know, they kind of put it in relative terms to there's many other problems that we need to deal with. And they're, um, you know, kind of stacking the problems as if they're very separate. And um, what we try to point out is that, you know, all of these problems are very much related globalization, environmental changes, um, conflicts and poverty and you know like they're all the the social and environmental are inherently um, linked and uh, and finally we probably the one that is most frustrating for many is that we recognize the problem we recognize the seriousness of it and yet we still fail to do anything about it and I think that's what's creating a lot of the um, frustration and anger among young people and people who really see that you know we can do better than this. And um, and they really want that, um, you know, the responses to take place now.
0: Talk a little bit more about our role in climate change as we're entering what's being called, a, you mentioned the Anthropocene, that the human is at least half the cause of the massive changes we're having, perhaps much more than that. So talk about that, because I think we need to go over and see where what are the things that are actually accelerating that and break it down into say the uh, industry and transportation and production of electricity and all the different ways that, that we're actually creating this. And so people can get a better sense of that.
1: I think that, um, you know, like it's very much the, um, you know the burning of fossil fuels where which have stored carbon in the, below the Earth's surface for um, millions of years so we're actually releasing stored carbon from that came from um, the sun through vegetation um, and everything and we're releasing that you know through our use of energy through um, transport through um, agriculture through you know through all of the activity human activities um that we do so land use changes themselves are then you know the car the soils store carbon and we're releasing um you know we're not storing as much in soil so it's really our you know the the, our energy use our land use changes um what we eat the diets every you know everything is is contributing in different ways to this and often we just try to to you know simplify it and just say oh it's just about carbon or just about um you know it's just about fossil fuels but it's also about agriculture. It's also about, um, you know, like how, you know, how are we relating to the environment?
0: Mm -hmm. I remember years ago I had Richard Heinberg on. I don't know if you know Richard, but he's way back in the seventies started talking about peak oil and written a number of books around that. And he was talking about if we burned the known resources, fossil fuel resources that we have, we would totally be cooked And here the Arctic is opening up, and they're all excited about more oil, and we're using these really horrible Mordorian kind of things that are creating more and more carbon. Talk about our relationship to power. I think that's an interesting question, both electrical power, but power in general, Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, you know, power, electrical power and the power to actually do things. And, and, you know, that's where, you know, the, the industrial revolution and, and using energy has, you know, it's created the world that we're living in. And it's, you know, it's contributed to modernity as we know it. And what, um, You know, scientists call the great acceleration that has happened since in the post-war area where most, you know, almost all the curves of, you know, the environmental trends and the social trends have really just shot up like this. Um, And so and And that power you know it 's often when we talk about the anthropocene, we act like it 's everybody, but it actually isn 't the entire world that has been contributing equally to this. In fact, the ones who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and are going to feel the effects um, most are often have contributed the least to the problems so so that brings in equity dimensions and when you talk about climate change is a social issue, you have to really look at it in terms of like equity and ethics and, you know, like the, just um, social justice and environmental justice and energy justice come into this. And so how do you address, you know, the, those, you know, behind power, there's also, you know, there's interests, there's values. And you mentioned, you know, the, the resources in the Arctic region. Um, which really comes down to, you know, it's it's about power struggles, but it's also a value conflict about, you know, whose values count when we're talking about the future, whether it will be one and a half degrees warmer or four degrees warmer and who decides that. And so power comes down to like empowerment. How do we collectively empower ourselves to actually change the change that we're creating right now and reduce risk and vulnerability um, at a, at a tremendously rapid rate. And that again, brings us into the social realm.
0: Yeah. And I love that you bring it into the social realm and also that you look at it as both, the threat and the opportunity one of the reasons i kind of left mainstream resistance to uh, probably 15 years ago resistance to uh, climate change uh, was the amount of negativity and anger uh, that was being put out at the time uh, towards others and we have this sense of blaming it on others out there and yet when you look at the the potential of it there's a huge potential for both individual awakening and possibility and growth and creating a global culture of uh, peace and equity. You talk about climate justice, you know the people that are polluting the most are um, the least often the least impacted by the situation, and the people who are. Uh, polluting the least are the ones that are the most impacted by it and how do you find equity in that and how do you find a sense of personal responsibility to from the sense of the ability to respond uh, in a moral ethical and way that's in alignment with our values and our beliefs and our needs.
1: Yeah, there's quite a lot in there, sorry. the equity. No, but I'm, I'm just thinking because um, the one thing that first strikes me is that you know we often you know talk about winners and losers with climate change that there you know there will be the that you know some people will benefit and some people will lose. But but I think that idea there's a, a kind of a general com- complacency among in many groups and countries and things that oh we'll be fine. It's the others that will be affected, and I think what we're seeing more and more whether it's you know f- wildfires in California. Or Australia, and you know, like the storms and floods um, everywhere is that um, you know, this is a global issue, and that it that there, you know, there, there is there will be relative winners and losers and things, but it's really going to affect everyone, and there's not it's not going to um, you know, it's, it's affecting global systems, and so when we start to look at you know, how where are those responses, they are global it's like individual collective but they're really systemic changes that have to take place Um, it's very easy to reduce climate change to a carbon dioxide problem and you know talk about your carbon footprint and my carbon footprint and everything but it is really about how we've organized society how where we invest our resources what types of risks we're willing to take or not willing to take and which ones do we insure and um, you know um, you know collectively um, like not you know say okay and so you know if we start to actually look at um those you know at at the systemic level you start to see it's not you know there's like a hundred companies that are responsible for 75 percent of emissions or things and so you could it's easy to like blame things but it is it's um you know it's it's almost like the entire system itself has to change and we're part of that so we are collective we are the systems and it's going to take this collaboration and this movement that will i think if we actually get to the underlying causes of climate change we will solve many other problems as well um, in terms of um, equity and justice and, and things but that takes a whole like shift here so the adaptation that we have to do really is in how we frame the problem and how we see the solutions
0: I remember somebody on my show once, I uh, can't remember his name, but he said something like, uh, You're not driving the train that's taking the people to Auschwitz, but you're wearing the shoes that are being made there. And that was such a startling comment to me. And it really applies to this situation. You know, we're looking out here at, as you say, the hundred companies that are producing mm-hmm. 75. But what are those companies doing? They're providing transportation, they're providing clothing, they're providing plastic, they're providing big agribusiness, food that we eat. How do we reconcile that dilemma there?
1: Yeah, because, you know, we need the lights on, we need society. We don't want that societal collapse to happen in terms of that. So how do we do it in a very wise way? How do we move? It? And then, you know, you start to look at like, oh, we have all this renewable energy potential. And, and then again, it goes into like where the financial event investments have been made. And, um, and what the, you know, you know, Paul Hawkins drawdown book talks about a hundred solutions for climate change. And, um and if we start to look at it as a social issue we see that there's thousands of solutions because it really is you know everybody has a role to play in this whether you're a musician or an architect or you know they're like just everyone has a sphere of influence that they can affect a system a household is a system a um you know a sports team is a system and so we can actually influence so much more um than we we do. And that's where I think, you know, if we start to change the way we think about the problem, we'll change the way we think about the solutions as well. And so rather than just going and putting it out there as blaming this, we start to see where our power is to make those shifts and what we see, you know, in the social sciences is again, that, you know, we are socially connected through language and meaning and we influence each other. And that's why, you know, the social changes, suddenly you see vegetarian options in grocery stores and restaurants. And suddenly you see that there are, um, you know, more bicycle lanes here or there that people are working for systemic change. Um, and, you know, I think that's the really promising part that um, yeah, we can collectively do something about this.
0: Really is. I want to get deeper into that subject, but I thought it would be good to look at why the fossil fuel industry has such a foothold with the infrastructures, the politics, the uh, subsidies, very hard to break up that huge thing. And how can we break help to break that um, foothold? And and what does that look like from your perspective? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, there's a logic to the fossil fuels because, you know, they're just, you know, as hydrocarbons are so, you know, they, they, they are very effective um, in terms of energy, but at, at the same time, if you put it in this larger context of what they're doing to the environment, to local environments and to the global environment, you start to see like, wait, this is not necessarily um, uh, the best. And that brings us then to alternatives, the renewable energy resources that we could be investing in also, because, you know, you've, there's just, you know, between, Um, the sun and wind and waves. And, you know, there's, there's lots of other forms. And I think when we start to shift where we invest our energy and also not just the production of energy, but also our use of energy, um, obviously there's unequal use of energy around the world. And we, the projections for the future are this immense growth and growth. And, you know, to, to reduce the collective consumption of energy is going to be part of that solution also. So when I think about fossil fuels, I think, um, you know, you look at a geography book written in 19, in like 1895, and when fossil fuels were very new, and it was, it was just a, you know, what do we do with this? And they were just discovering all these uses for it, including in for the internal combustible engines and, you know, and they didn't have any imagination that there would be 6,000 uses for it by, um, you know, like. 2015 or something and um and what i'm thinking you know in the future like we just don't, there will be other uses for it that would just not be about burning it and you know be using it to um you know i have i know somebody who's working on creating a plasma out of it and so so there's you know we we really will look back and say why did we burn the fossil fuels this was such a valuable resource that could have been lasted for you know millennia and um and i think instead of you know and ignoring all the other opportunities that are here. So going back to, you know, interests and politics and power and, you know, and how do we transform energy systems and transport systems and agricultural systems and things. And that's where I think the exciting parts of research are really leading is to, you know, away from just looking at the problem, but let's look at how we transform. Hmm.
0: Similar to the issue of how we cut down all the trees in the, 20th century, you know, that to burn wood and then realizing that, wait a minute, if I cut down all the trees, I'm not going to be able to breathe. Your mention about the fossil fuels that a hundred years from now may be just precious resource mm-hmm. that supplies us something completely different in an equitable and sustainable way. I wanted to mention to our listeners, I'm I'm speaking with Karen O'Brien, climate scientist, and we're talking about her new book, Climate and Society. I also wanted to you mention Paul's book, Drawdown. I just want to put a plug-in. I think you worked on that book with Paul a hundred ways that we personally can do something about climate change, which I think is a really important thing. And one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, I'm on a juice fast right now, uh, kind of cleaning up after a month on the road. Um, And I I happened to watch Joe the Juicer uh, from Australia, and he did a video, and I had it on as I was doing some other thing and listening to it. And he interviewed all these people about their diet. They, They were mostly overweight people. And as he asked them questions, he tried to get them to look at the possibility of doing a juice fast, you know, and, and healing some of the issues and some of the things that he had been going in and taking pills for and all of this stuff. And most of the people that he interviewed would say, Oh, I couldn't ever do that. You know, well, maybe I'll just die earlier. which brings me to that whole thing that I enjoyed in the chapter on transforming worldviews, beliefs, identities, values, and uh, an emotion and dealing with emotions the emotional issue Mm -hmm. so many people are shut down about this issue talk about that aspect and how you see kind of an inner transformation that could emerge in our global system our global society
1: Mm. i think that like the the real focus like a lot of my research now really and many people's research is focusing on the change part of climate change you know and as you mentioned with the juice fast that like change can be really scary it's there's you know unless we really know that we're going to benefit it can be something that we're very much against and so when we look at transformation we try to look at it you know from different perspectives like from the, the very practical thing that to change you have to change your habits there's like lots of logistics involved um there it's also Political, their systems, their structures, their social norms. There's there's ways that societies organize that make it really difficult or hard to change. So, um you know, in terms of when we try to change, we're embedded in a society that is organized in a certain way, but that organization is also very linked to that personal sphere of transformation: the beliefs and the values and the worldviews and the kind of thought patterns or paradigms that influence the way that we relate to each other and see each other. You know. Um, in relation to the environment and to the future um, and everything. And when you try to, you know, bring change home to people, they're dealing with all of those. And and one of the things that we've been doing um, both in my research and in my teaching and now with the more general public is we just ask people to do one change experiment to, ex- you know, just to do something for 30 days and to look at it from different perspectives and really observe it as an object of change is to start to see those very, the practical, the political, and the personal dimensions of change and how you relate to them and reflecting on, you know, you know, we, we provide reflection questions for them, but to start to see that it's, you know, like you actually, you influence others as you change, you're influenced by others as you change. And you also, you know, you're influenced by systems, but you also can influence those systems. So, so taking it almost like one step at a time to see, the power that we actually have to change and to, to influence, you know, to work together. I think it's um, really like, we underestimate our collective capacity for social change by pushing change as something to be like, Oh no, that's scary. And I think, um, yeah, the, the, that potential for transformation from the inside out, outside in, you know, it's, it's really just one. It's really that, you know, that's you know, how we relate to change.
0: You mean we're all one, isn't just a bumper sticker?
1: I think in this world, you know, we're really seeing if that's the, you know, the lesson of the Anthropocene is that we're starting to really get that we are just, you know, we are part of the systems that we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a minute, talking about quantum social science, but I was thinking about what you were saying as you were saying it, and I was meditating this morning and I was overwhelmed with gratitude for the elementals for the air and the water and the earth and the, you know, the light, the sun, the energy. And I just had this overwhelming feel and I have a very animistic kind of relationship with nature anyway, but that's not what everybody has. So let's talk about the different views we have about nature. You talk about the four rationalities and how we approach our view of the natural world.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there's, you know, like sometimes some people think of nature as just something that, you know, is very robust and resilient. Other people think it's very ephemeral or um, things that in general, we, you know, we have a view of nature as being something out there and something that's separate from us. And, you know, what, what you're alluding to, too, is that it's also it is us. We are, you know, that line between humans and natures is, you know, we are um you know, microbes and bacteria, we are water, we are now plastic, too, um, apparently. And so that that kind of thing, but also where we draw the line between us and, you know, the natural world, what's natural, what's not natural, is is very much in, you know, our views of nature, but also in our worldviews, in our beliefs, our assumptions about the world. And, and to keep up with the science, we actually have to be willing to, you know, challenge some of those assumptions. And not just intellectually but also experientially and that's where you know the connections with nature being outside in nature and and actually observing it and then, you know how we relate to it i think is a um it can be a really powerful way of of you know kind of yeah connecting uh, you know and i think to me that the big transformation has to happen is about connecting connecting the dots and thinking that we can reconnect the dots but really um coming from a place of integrity and oneness, as you say, to say that, you know, this is, you know, and that really links to the values that we hold and what values that apply to the entire system, equity, compassion, dignity, um, those things. And when we stand in those values that apply to the whole, we change the whole.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I, I, I think that it really is there is a need for cultivating a a deeper relationship with nature as an action. I think it's one of the most important actions that people can take in response to climate change is to cultivate a relationship with the natural world. As someone who's been a shamanic practitioner for many years, you know, I have a very different perhaps relationship with the natural world, more of an indigenous perspective, but just to, to walk in the woods alone and pay attention. I mean, nothing more than that can really cause a transformation, I think. Uh, you know, a, a quantum change, and, and one of the things that we had talked about, and, and Alex Rent's gonna be on our show in a couple of weeks, uh, talking about quantum social change and uh, applying the, the principles of quantum physics I I write about this in some of my writing about it as a metaphor, because it's not because of the belief that, well, it only applies to microscopic and not the macro world, although I have a sense that it does, and we just haven't been able (laughs) to discern that. But even as a metaphor, looking at the principles of inseparability, of entanglement, of embracing uncertainty all of these things that are entering into a hundred years after it actually was introduced, those ideas are now entering into not just physics, but into biology and sociology and philosophy and many other areas. And language is such an important issue because this 350 year old worldview is embedded in the language that we use and the institutions and the politics and science and everything. So this shift, talk about this shift that you and Alex and other people, I'm so excited about it, you can tell, uh, because I think using these principles or what Thich Nhat Hanh talk, calls about interbeing are, are so important to bring about this shift that we need in the issue of climate change.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting area because people are starting to th- take that, you know, the the paradigm of science itself as changing and looking at what does this mean at the macro scale, at the social level. And, you know, some people just use the methods from quantum physics and quantum decision making and quantum game theory or, Q you know, there's lots of different ways that people are just using the methods without any, you know, say th- you know, just because it works better. Um, but also, you know, as you said, metaphorically, there's just, you know, language. We live our lives through metaphors and cultures change through metaphors. But I think also we can turn look at it meaningfully. And that's what, you know, Alex went in his quantum social sciences, looking at consciousness and, um, and psychism and starting to see that, you know, like, wow, we... You know it, it we are you know what people call walking wave functions that we we are potentiality and it is through language and it is through meaning that we are connected and i think that that's um you know you, you can believe whatever you want but i guess the 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 lesson that i get from it is at the you know subatomic scale with quantum physics you know, we, we'll, we're we welcoming to say, like, reality is not what it seems. And I think that the exciting part is, you know, social reality is not what it seems also, because we are connected, we are entangled through, you know, whether it's consciousness, language, meaning, or, you know, we're wired for connection, just, you know, classically. And yet that, the classical Newtonian paradigm of individualism, atomism, reductionism, determinism, that doesn't give us the tools we need to be able to meet a complex challenge like climate change or a hyper-complex challenge like climate change, you know, something that is just so, um, you know, beyond what we've ever done before. I think we really need to be able to use that. And it goes back to what you were talking about, indigenous worldviews and other ways of knowing. and And I think that a lot of what the, quantum social sciences thing it is a there are it's it's really very much aligned with different um, different ways of knowing and being in the world and it really brings in you know a relational worldview and a, a a holistic you know very much based on the, the you know this idea of you know we are one system and and I think it, it, it's consistent with our understanding of the anthropocene and it's really emerging as this this you know from science itself is starting to say that yes, you know the connections are there and um and from that, I think you know for me, the idea that we could have these like a uh, quantum social change that that we actually can collectively respond so much faster and more effectively if we are all you know kind of a, treat ourselves as like fractals of change grounded in these values that where you know we are operating at all scales at one time that um that you know the potential is there in the moment it's not that we have to wait for 2030 to do something about climate change but it's right here and now and now and now where we're like really you know collapsing reality into you know what we experience and Quantum Bayesianism, or you know, there's many different interpretations of it. But some of it is, you know, it is our beliefs on the future that actually enact that future. You know what we're betting on. And I think if we need, to, if we're going to focus on a thriving world, then we'll focus. You know, we'll be looking at the solutions for that.
0: You know, if you look at the media, you would not see really what's happening. I think it's so exciting to see that this is entering, you know, we're talking about it here on a radio show, you're out at conferences, you know, talking about it. So many people, Alex is bringing it into the whole field of quantum social science. And it's really a conversation that that's a live conversation. And if people are just watching the news and focusing on mainstream media, you're not going to hear this. So, how do we get around this? You know, I'm a, a media person and I stay with community radio because it's the last vestige of honest, exploratory kind of conversations. Even in the States, our, the public radio has been usurped by how do we get funding and money and the big companies that are really dictating research the same way. Often the big companies are, because of the need for money for doing research, they're being co-opted by some of these fossil fuel interests. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on how to how to address that? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's definitely like not in the mainstream script, you know, so it's a little bit like off the radar, yet it is very vibrant, and especially among younger people who are, you know, are, there's many people around the world that are, you know, that are not questioning this, but I think for coming from science um, and, you know, the climate change, I think that, we're at a point where we really do have to just open up the inquiry and say, what if, and, you know, to start to say like, yeah, let's do some thought experiments. Let's take everything we know um, theoretically, analytically, and then, you know, that, and, and what it, what it, it's information is because we can keep going and focusing on the the problems. But if we know that the solutions really are about, you know, connecting and collaborating, then, you know, just even metaphorically and telling ourselves a different story about the future becomes really important. Right now, so many of the stories about the future are very much based on this deterministic understanding of the future. It's like, oh, it's already here. We've already, you know, we have no hope. And yet exactly what we're saying in climate science is all the solutions are here and that, you know, there's a potential is right here in the moment. We have a very short window of opportunity. And so how do we actually activate that sense of individual and collective agency, the political agency, the, you know, how do we do that? And I think that science itself offers so many good clues and we're just not picking up on them. And it's, you know, it's very exciting that many people are starting to, you know, check out like, okay, what, you know, what, what was, what would, if we reinvented the social sciences today, what would it look like? And that's been Alex Wendt's project, you know, like, let's, let's just try to think about, you know what would quantum social science look like and it's you know if you you know that you can just take it as this thing of like wow we have this potential right here right now for to make that quantum leap and that isn't just a you know this physical leap but it's really a change in the way that we relate to the problem and to the solutions
0: i think another issue that's important here is social media we're talking about social change and social media I know you've been connected with Tristan Harris, and I highly recommend looking at his work that really reveals what's behind Facebook, YouTube, and how people are in little rooms in these big companies looking and strategizing of how to capture our attention. And so much of that capturing is through divisiveness, is through anger, is through separating people or conspiracy theory, that that really brings people into social media. You know, you might turn off the news, but still be watching social media. And you might hear some things about quantum social change. What are the best avenues for people to try to separate through the the craziness in social media and other forms and find common voices in this area of quantum social change and climate change.
1: That's a great question because you know there there's a, a addictiveness to this and and um um recently i read a book called weapons of math destruction about algorithms by kathy o'neill and it was really interesting but what she talks about you know the power of those algorithms to actually influence you know what we see what we do what we like but also she says you know they can be used for good or bad because they're really they are based on the values underlying them what you what you do and i think that um you know to be the more aware we become of how we are being pulled in a certain direction how dirt you know and and to you know, limit that social media and focus on the relationships right in front of us and use that and use, you know, use it to, you know, to, to spread those things that you want. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit, a little bit about what we try in education is, you know, like critical reflection and being, being aware of what, um, you know, what we're doing in these moments. And, and, you know, so everything can be used for, positive or for negative but i think that when again when we're looking at what the values are underlying these things what are what's what's you know what are they wanting us to do and i think that um the focus on attention you know brings us back to those interior dimensions of of climate change and the human dimensions and mindfulness and and really being able to you know focus on the here and now so that we can actually activate that um you know the millions of solutions that are out
0: there. Yeah. So much more to talk about much, much more. We'll have to do another show soon, but I'd like you to speak a little bit in terms of getting people educated. Some of the work that you're doing with cchange.no and some of the organizations that people might want to tune into to get a rational, well thought out perspective on what's actually happening and what's also possible.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, there, the, you know shifting from like i mean i think that there's a lot on climate change um you know the intergovernmental panel on climate change and you know the international energy agency there's there's so many reports that tell us what's happening but there's also a growing amount of literature on the solutions and on transformations and i think that that has a lot of you know regardless of whether you know you're whether climate change is your issue or plastics or water access and quality or things that are just air to breathe. I think that we can start to connect all of those dots to see how our, you know, our actions and responses shape that future. And in writing the textbook on climate and society, transforming the future, Robin Lashenko and I were really trying to, you know, create this, this, um, this narrative or just, you know, showing the, the, the multiple perspectives um, from an integrative um you know point of view and to see that there are so many possibilities here now so it's it's really about um recognizing that yes we do have to adapt yes we do have to you know mitigate but it's really about transformation at at its heart And so um, and I think when you get people to see that they are the solution and that people are the most powerful solution to climate change, when we start to educate young people to see their role in it, not to be like just, you know, scared of this is the future, but to see that this is the future that we are shaping right now and that, you know, we will be remembered into that future. So, um, you know, there are so many important resources out there and so many great things happening right now. And. um, yeah, so I think that, you know, while I look at the science and you can be very, um, it is very scary and overwhelming um depressing, it's really the time to, you know, focus on the solutions.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love that you call your book, Climate and Society Transforming the Future, a textbook. And uh, I'm excited that it is being used mm-hmm. as a textbook. Mm-hmm. But I want you to know that in my monthly Well of Light newsletter that just went out, it's the book of the month. And I would not relegate this to just a textbook (laughs) that everyone should read. And just so, so well-researched and so many powerful ideas and views and optimism for the possibilities that we have in the future. And I I just want to thank you for the amazing work that you've been doing for so long, Karen. And I'm I'm so excited that I finally met Karen (laughs) O'Brien and get have a conversation about mm-hmm. this. And I know our listeners are really grateful mm-hmm. for hearing something that's not just bad news, but something that's mm-hmm. a reality that we need to face. And at the same time, something that's inspiring and really each of us have an opportunity to step into our own power and our own wisdom and uh, our opportunity to really make a difference in the world.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me and um, the great conversation and yeah, your inspiring work too. And so, yeah, we can do this.
0: Yes, we can. <laughs> thanks, Karen. Okay, thanks. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.